Thank you, Jeff. I was able to enjoy it twice this morning. And so I said thank you. Many of us know about relationship between parents and children because they're commonplace in our society. But what's the relationship when the parent is God and the child is Jesus? I invite you to listen this morning as I read from Mark's gospel, the first chapter. I'll begin reading with verse 4. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, the one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thongs of his sandals. I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. Listen for what the spirit is saying to the church today. Did you hear what that prophet down at the Jordan said to Caleb, no, but I heard the name that he called the high priest. Well, I heard that he told the soldiers they'd have to quit stealing from us. No matter where you went in Jerusalem, the topic of conversation was always the same. John, he was preaching near the resort down at Jericho. If you could call what he did preaching, He was not at all like the prophets at the Jerusalem temple who preached at worship each week. And he dressed more like a poor beggar than a preacher. And his manners were worse than his dress. But he wasn't dull. No one slept while he preached. And no one's attention wandered. Everyone listened. It wasn't enough that he told everyone they needed to turn away from sinning. After all, prophets always do that. He got specific. He looked the tax collectors right in the eye and told them to stop over-collecting. He told the rich to stop being greedy and to start sharing with the poor. He told the soldiers to stop taking people's property and money and forcing them to work for them. And those who were willing to turn away from their sins, he baptized He said that the washing of the desert dust from their bodies was a good symbol of the washing of the dirt of sin from their hearts by the forgiveness of God. The people crowded along the Jordan River in the desert. Every day, the number of people who traveled down the road from Jerusalem to the Jordan River increased. You might wonder, what was the attraction? Certainly, it wasn't his appearance. He wore only a coarse, coarse, 
knee-length shirt fastened around the waist with a leather thong. And actually, it wasn't that he was unique. There had been other prophets that had come out of the desert. The harsh life of the desert seemed to incubate these men periodically. Actually, it was not even his baptism. The Essenes, the Pharisees, even the temple leaders practiced ceremonial washings and baptisms. Perhaps, just perhaps, it was the authority with which he spoke of God's judgment of sin and offer of forgiveness to those who repented. Then came the day that was different from all the rest. It started when one of the men stepped out of that crowd toward John, who was standing out in the water. John had been preaching about the Messiah. He had been doing that now for several days. He said the Messiah was coming. And the way John talked about the coming of the Messiah made people in the crowd begin to believe he ought to be here soon. John talked as if he were preparing the way for the arrival of the Messiah. And then Jesus stepped forward. Those nearest would remember that John seemed startled. It wasn't as if he were surprised that Jesus was there. Obviously, he expected him. But John didn't think it was right for him to baptize the Messiah. After all, the Messiah is no sinner. He didn't need to repent. So why should he be baptized? Jesus insisted gently, but with an unmistakable firmness in his voice. He walked out into the water and knelt before John. Then as John spoke the words of the baptism formula, he leaned forward and under the water. When he raised his head, there was a preoccupied expression on his face. Those who followed him were later to learn that God had spoken to him. You are my son. I'm pleased with you. In the midst of all that action, all the people stirring and moving and everything that was going on, what stands out most clearly is that divine comment to Jesus. God called Jesus son. Now Jesus knew about parents and family and home. He knew the teachings of the Jewish leaders about people as the children of God. But in that moment, Jesus had confirmed to him a relationship to God deeper and more personal than anything he had known before. A Jewish carpenter from Nazareth had his identity clearly revealed when God said, Son. God expressed pleasure with Jesus. Now, when we hear that, are we to hear only the tone that's common for parents talking about their children? I don't think so, because God's pleasure does a good deal more. What God delights in is selected, is chosen, is appointed. God's pleasure meant the assignment of the task for Jesus to be the Messiah, the Savior. In that brief comment, God propelled Jesus into a new stage in his life. Jesus was launched into a public ministry of love and service and forgiveness and Yes, death. But how does that touch you? How about you? You're sitting in a padded pew. You're not standing in the sun on the dust by the river bank. 
You live in 2017. It's not 25 AD for you. Yours is a highly technological, modern world, not a quiet, primitive, rural society. What difference does this event long ago make for you today here? It may be of some interest, perhaps, but it could just as easily have been forgotten. Why wasn't it? Because in this event, our contact with God is renewed. Relationship is restored, strengthened, expanded. So how then is it that God is touching you this morning in July 2017? A couple of ways I want to suggest. The first is that God defines who you are. As we sang in the hymn earlier in the service, God is who he is and he defines who we are. Think about the ways for a moment that society defines us. Maybe it's by gender. We're either male or female. Or perhaps it's by our age. We're 13 or 26 or 42 or 75. Maybe it's by a role, a mother or father, a sister or brother, wife, husband, son, daughter. Or perhaps job, an attorney or a secretary or a nurse or a student or a teacher. Or possessions, four-bedroom brick ranch, $43,000 a year salary, bass boat, insurance agency. Our society has a number of ways in which they decide who you are. But how do you know? How do you know who you are? A small, black, poverty-stricken boy in Kentucky knows. He made a banner in Vacation Bible School. And on it he wrote, I'm me, and that's okay, because God don't make no junk. No junk. But who are you? You are the product of a loving creative God. God made you, every one of you. You are a child of God. And as such, it means that God defines the purpose for your life. A child dreams about being an astronaut or or a homemaker or a cowboy or a doctor. A worker asked a question about his job, replied, I'm just putting in my time. A college student enlists in the Peace Corps to make the world, or a little bit of it, better. A business executive works 19 hours a day to build a business, a bank account, and financial security. A woman spends hours and hours teaching her children so that they can have it better than she does. What about you? Why are you living? Why are you living Carl Jung, one of the founders of modern psychology, once commenting on his practice said, among all the patients who have consulted me in the second half of their lives, that is over 35, not one of them has recovered enthusiasm for living until recovering or discovering faith in God. What this psychologist says only confirms what we've already learned in Jesus. God is the one who gives us purpose for our lives. God is the one who calls us to use our lives to contribute to, to advance the work that God wants done with people in this world. And we have learned that it's only in this unselfish giving of ourselves to benefit others 
under the leading of God that our lives mean what they should. This morning I wanted to look with you at why Jesus' life was like it was. But what about you? Would you like to know what it would be like if you let your life grow out of the pleasure of God like Jesus did? If God were to say about you, I'm pleased with you, my child. For years, Father Edwin Farrell, a Roman Catholic priest, served in the slum district of the inner city of Detroit. His family had originally come to this country from Ireland. And several years ago, he was able to fulfill a dream of his life to go back to his ancestral roots. He was able to spend a month in Ireland. One evening, he tells how he was walking along a country road alone, simply enjoying the beauty of the land, when he met a simple Irish farmer who was also out for an evening stroll. They walked along together for a bit until a sudden rainstorm blew up, and they quickly rushed to a nearby barn for shelter and sat there waiting for the storm to pass. As they sat there, Father Farrell noticed that the farmer was praying quietly under his breath, Not for show, just naturally. Now, since Farrell was not in his clerical dress, the old man had no way of knowing that he was a priest. So as they began walking again after the rain, Father Farrell turned to him and said, I saw you praying back there. You must be close to God. To which the farmer replied simply, Oh, yes, he's very fond of me and I of him. When you accept who you are, and why you are from God, he will be very fond of you, and you will be very fond of him. And that's the way it should be. Will you pray with me? Oh God, we are grateful that you're fond of us, and we offer to you the fondness of our heart in response to your love. Enable us to follow you in everything we do day by day. As we pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Our hymn of commitment this morning is number 290, I Cannot Dance, O Love. I invite you to stand and join as we sing together. <laughs> 